say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 70, The Napoleon of Egypt, in which King Tutmos III demonstrates why they call him the Napoleon of Egypt, by leading a stunning and dangerous charge against his most formidable foes. This episode is the third or so in our quote-unquote trilogy of Tutmos's mighty war campaigns, which were the preeminent achievement of his first decade in sole power. Like the Megiddo campaign which began this process, the 8th campaign is well documented in the historical record. We know the dates, the sequence, and the details of events. We even have the names of some of the participants, and a fairly good handle on what actually happened over the campaign's duration. So without further ado, welcome to Tutmos's most glorious campaign. This episode takes place over an unusually specific time frame for this podcast. That period is approximately six months long, from May to November of the year 1462 BCE. During this time, Tutmos III departed Egypt, conducted his war, and returned. And many years later, the events were translated into inscriptions, on temples, on tombs, and on great stelae at various locations. Thanks to this huge number of records which survive, the campaign has been reconstructed, carefully and painstakingly, by Egyptologists. Thanks to their efforts, in particular the eminent professor Donald B. Redford, we are able to pin the dates and events down to some proper specifics. So what you hear today is, by and large, the narrative as it survives. It began, as most of Tutmos's campaigns did, with a sea voyage. In May of 1462, the Egyptian fleet departed the great harbour city of Peru Nefer in the Nile Delta. With great fanfare, the mighty vessels pulled away from the docks and anchor points and headed down the Nile. They were travelling towards the coast, for the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. At their head, the flagship of the king led the way. We are not told how many ships left Egypt on that day, but we can guess. Standard estimates put this Egyptian army at about 10,000 people. That included soldiers, sailors, animal handlers, equipment makers, organizers, and overseers. Add to that the women and children that probably accompanied some of the higher-ranking officials, and you effectively have a mobile city on the move, thousands of bodies moving towards a single goal, one of the greatest expeditions ever launched in Egyptian history. With 10,000 people to convey, not to mention horses and equipment like chariots and weapons, the fleet probably needed more than 100 ships to carry them all. 
When they departed Egypt, this must have been one of the most spectacular flotillas ever to sail the Nile River. Even Hatshepsut had not sent so many for her expedition to Punt. This was a great war fleet, the sort of undertaking that Tutmos was increasingly making his trademark. The sheer size of Tutmos's force should give us some idea of what he was looking to accomplish. After several years of tramping up and down Syria in an attempt to subjugate various cities, Tutmos had realised that his efforts were not quite panning out the way he wanted to. So, in year 33, he assembled the largest army Egypt had yet fielded, perhaps, and set out for Syria once more. This time, Tutmos was taking no prisoners. He would smash aside any opposition, and woe betide those who got in his way. Tutmos's objective was complete control of Syria, and he was going for it with the utmost audacity and courage. He had assembled his great army, and now, as he set out for the city of Byblos, he was preparing to launch what might have been the largest campaign in Egypt's history. This campaign, which is the eighth campaign of Tutmos's reign, was going to go down as one of the most audacious feats in the Egyptian military legend. It would see the king travel further north than ever before, the boundaries of Egypt pushed to heretofore unknown heights, and it would ensure a great deal of military glory for everybody involved. Finally the day came, and the vessels put to sea. The Egyptian fleet was en route to the colony town of Byblos in modern Lebanon. The voyage from Peru Nefer to Byblos took approximately eight days. Hugging the coast, the Egyptians sailed east from the delta, then along the Sinai Peninsula, turning north at Gaza and Canaan. Stopping at ports and harbours along the way, they went up the coast of Israel, and finally came to the harbour that they desired. The city of Byblos was ready to receive them. Tutmos and his army disembarked at Byblos and nearby towns. The Egyptian fleet was far too large to stop at a single harbour. Too many ships, too many men. So they fanned out across the nearby coastline to land their ships and unload. The whole process probably took a day or two, but that was okay. Tutmos was not worried. The journey to Byblos was one which Tutmos and his warriors had been making for years. Most campaigns into this part of the world had been launched from the port and its harbour. As the Egyptian empire crept further north, Byblos was simply the most logical place to attack from. Loyal rulers, helpful population, and good infrastructure. It was the Egyptians' best asset in the region, and Tutmos made full use of it. As the sailors and soldiers unloaded the great sea-going ships, Tutmos and his officials met with the leaders of Byblos. The king of Egypt sat down with the mayor and explained to him why he had come. The mayor, or Hatia, was not surprised. It was a standard request, and he had heard it many times before. The Egyptians wanted access to Byblos's cedar wood. The town and its hinterland were rich with cedar forests, and the region was a trade centre for good quality timber. So when Tutmos said he wanted all the cedar wood that was available, the mayor acquiesced readily. But perhaps the mayor was surprised when Tutmos added a second request. He didn't want to take the wood back to Egypt for trading ships or temples. No, he wanted to use it here to put his carpenters and craftsmen to work in Byblos itself. Well, the mayor agreed, of course, but this must have seemed a strange request. The Egyptians immediately set to work. The Egyptian army sat in camp at Byblos for 15 days while their craftsmen did their work. 
Daily, soldiers would march out to cut down the trees and haul the wood back to the city. The carpenters took over from there, taking tree trunks and turning them into lumber, and then refining them into carefully shaped boards. Over the whole process, foremen and military officers kept a sharp eye, seeing that everything was done to exact requirements. The king, in the city palace, heard daily reports with growing anticipation. While the soldiers and craftsmen worked hard, there were a couple of things that the king needed to do as well. Firstly, he had to visit the local temples, the temple of Hathor and Balat Jabal, the divine ladies of Byblos. These goddesses, fearsome of power and strong in their protection, gave succor to the Egyptians and Biblites, and protected them from the threats all around in Syria. Tutmos would be foolish to ignore them, and so, in his time at Byblos, he surely visited the temples of the goddesses, and gave them his obedience and his offerings. It was only proper. Secondly, the king had to take care of some diplomatic factors. He was heading into hostile territory, and any preparations that might smooth the way were sensible. So, while he stayed at Byblos, he sent officials out to visit some of the cities that would be on his route of march. These heralds of the king were tasked with meeting local leaders and convincing them to join the Egyptian side. Or, if they would not ally with Tutmos, the heralds would convince them to, at the very least, stay out of the way and make no trouble. The heralds spoke softly, but everyone who listened knew that behind the dignitary there was a very big stick. Finally, about a month after they had first departed Egypt, the Egyptian army was ready to leave. In their wagon train, the product of the carpenter's work was loaded up, hidden from prying eyes, to be revealed at the proper moment. Wagon after wagon was stocked with this mysterious equipment, Tutmos's secret weapon. Now, the march east began. Leaving Byblos, the Egyptian army was marching in well-trodden territory. They were more than familiar with the landscape of this region. For the past four years, Tutmos had been making regular incursions into the area. Year after year, from regnal years 29 to 31, he had come up this route in order to attack his most obstinate foes. Once again, he was heading on this path. On the edge of the Egyptian empire, the great city-states of Syria remained disloyal and resistant. Stubbornly, the cities of Tunip and Kadesh held out against Tutmos' incursions, and behind their high stone walls, they had endured attack after attack. Although Tutmos had burned crops, torn up orchards, and wreaked all kinds of devastation on the local economy, Tunip and Kadesh were defiant. Always they survived, and the Egyptians had never broken through. Well, this time things would be different but maybe not in the way that you're expecting. It may surprise you to learn that Tutmos had temporarily stopped attacking these cities. As the Egyptian army advanced northward into Syria, they decided to take a route that avoided Tunip and Kadesh almost entirely. It seems that Tutmos had recognized a simple fact. Behind their large stone walls, the populations of Tunip and Kadesh were simply beyond the reach of Egyptian military technology. With no battering rams, catapults, or sappers, the Egyptians could not hope to bring down such well-fortified communities. Ladders only took a person so far, and so any assault would carry high casualties, and ran the risk of costing Tutmos dearly in his warriors' lives. 
Admitting this situation, Tutmos stopped attacking these two towns. It was his only strategic defeat in ten years. How that must have rankled. So the Egyptian army decided to avoid its regular pattern, and now moved in a different direction. Over the course of about 13 days, they moved up the valley that we call Eleutheros, and headed for a town called Katna. Katna, briefly, was a very interesting little community. From about 1800 to 1400 BCE, it was a thriving industrial centre, with some of the largest pottery workshops in the region. Its central city was prosperous and urban, with a large government building, a palace, and a very wealthy cemetery. At its centre, the pottery workshops made huge quantities of goods for the export market, and archaeological excavations tell us that Katna was doing very well for itself. But even a prosperous town is no match politically for an empire, and Katna was always caught in the precarious borderland between Egypt's empire and those of the north. So Katna had a history of seesawing, giving its loyalty to different powers depending on who was in the ascendancy at any one time. This isn't to say they were nefarious or disloyal, more that, in this particular part of the world, some cities were more vulnerable than others. Katna, as far as we can tell, was the unfortunate middle in the geopolitical tug-of-war as Egypt and its enemies vied for control of Syria. When Thutmose III came to Katna, his army was 13 days out of Byblos. It had marched nearly 100 miles, and it was probably in need of a rest. Its wagon train, pulled by mules and donkeys, was puffing along at the rear. Now they had to face an obstacle. Would Katna obey and submit to Thutmose? Yes, it would. Katna was nominally outside of the Egyptian Empire, but even they must have recognised that the army that they were facing was beyond their means to combat. Tutmose's force was large, as many as 10,000 people, and Katna would not resist. The city opened its gates to the king, and permitted him and his army to camp beneath its walls. Smart decision. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. While Tutmose was here, he decided to sample the local wares. Specifically, he came to inspect the workshops of Katna. Even more specifically, he came to try out their weapons, their arrows and their bows. It is a dangerous thing to allow a borderland city to produce its own weapons, and Tutmose wished to assure himself that Katna posed no threat. For this, he decided to test the bows that Katna had made, and see if they were strong enough. A strong bow is a powerful bow. A powerful bow, in the right hands, can bring down many warriors. But of course, the opposite is also true. If the Katnans were to be the Egyptian servants, then surely they should produce the finest bows possible. What could the Egyptian army do with poor quality bows? And what worth is the city if that produces such weapons? Hmm, I wonder. Tutmos had control of Katna now, and he did not intend to lose it. 
With this in mind, the city was going to be a producer of fine quality weapons for the Egyptian army. So, Tutmos would test their bows by drawing them. If they broke, they were weak. And if they were weak, well... The king described the situation. Quote, His majesty was in the district of Katna on the eighth campaign of victory. He was near the river bank and came to test the bows of the city. I, that is Tutmos, selected the strongest of those, but none exceeded the limits of my strength or of any in my army. Thereupon another was made for my majesty, but none therein exceeded the limits of my strength. Well, this is no good. How have the Katnans got by this long with such poor quality weapons? If they were not careful, Tutmos would probably shut them down. But then someone, perhaps the prince of Katna, brought out the big guns, so to speak. Quote, Look, then they brought another to my majesty, a mighty bow, a mistress of strength. The likes of her had never been seen in this region. Its length measured two arm lengths, one palm, and five fingers. About it were fine costly gems. Her arrows measured one arm length, one palm, and five fingers. The bow was strong. Tutmos pulled and pulled, and it did not break. Then my majesty's heart was exceedingly glad at this first bow that did not break. I kept the bow and named it Son of Bastet, Champion of Egypt. This was its name. Well, success. Tutmos was glad. Katna was capable of producing fine bows. From now on, the city would produce these on behalf of the Egyptian army. Pleased with the city's produce, Tutmos ended his little sojourn. The army was rested, and the king sent his order. The march would commence once more. The Egyptian army set out for Katna and entered the second stage of its journey. Now the city of Kadesh was far behind them, Tutmos having decided not to attack it. Ahead lay the other great threat in Syria, the city of Tunip, northern master of the river Orontes. It had never fallen, perhaps this time would be the lucky break. As the army and the Syrians expected, Tutmos now crossed to the east bank of the Orontes River and began to march northward. Ahead of them, Tunip was the last bastion of southern Syria. If Tunip fell, the way was open into the heartland. Not much is known of Tunip archaeologically. We're not actually even sure where it was exactly. There are two or three sites that fit the bill quite nicely. So unfortunately, I can't describe it. All I can say is that Tunip was strong, and it played an important role in Syrian politics. Long after the days of the III, it continued to be a valuable ally and pawn in the great power games over Syria. Tunip had resisted the III for ten years. In his seventh campaign, Tutmos had attacked the region directly. He had swept the countryside, taken prisoners, burned the fields and orchards of the city. Now, two years later, he was back. What would Tunip do? You might be forgiven for assuming that Tunip would fight on once more, but it was not to be. This year, Tunip would not resist the king's army. The time for conflict had ended temporarily. Why? Well, Tutmos had brought with him a secret weapon. No, not the secret weapon he had constructed in Byblos, the secret weapon still riding along in the wagons of the army's baggage train. No, Tutmos had brought a diplomatic weapon. Tutmos carried with him a person, a prisoner, an individual of high worth, none other than a former prince of Tunip, 
a son of the elite, someone captured on a former campaign. This prince, of unknown name, was Tutmose's hostage, and in return for good behaviour, Tunip could have him back. Well, this was a coup indeed. For sure, Tutmose could not buy Tunip's submission, but he could buy their good behaviour, their quiescence. With this hostage, Tutmose could ensure that as his army marched further north, past the city, and then later came back, Tunip would not cause trouble. In effect, Tunip was out of the game. At least for now. At this point, one might expect that Tutmose was finished with his campaign. He had bypassed Kadesh, compelled the obedience of Katna, and brought Tunip into quiescence with his diplomacy. The goals of the campaign were accomplished, right? Wrong. Tutmose had not set out with 10,000 men just to compel some polite obedience. He hadn't marshalled his carpenters to build secret weapons just to solve his problem with diplomacy. And he had not sailed eight days, marched 17, and spent two weeks preparing his army at Byblos just to finish it all up here. No, Tutmose had a plan, a plan no one was going to expect. He wasn't marching into southern Syria just to compel peace. He was marching through southern Syria, in order to attack places and peoples further north. Indeed, he was marching north in order to attack someone else entirely. Someone that had been supporting Tunip and Kadesh for decades. Tutmose was marching into Syria in order to attack a great power, the rulers of Mesopotamia, which we call the Empire of Mitanni. The Mitanni were an interesting bunch, because they're quite hard to pin down to some specifics. They only flourished for about 400 years, and they left very few written or artistic records. What we know can be summarised in a few paragraphs or less, and that's what I've tried to do here. First up, the Mitanni as we know them were immigrants to the lands of Mesopotamia. They had come out of the Far East, Kurdistan and Iran, and came to dominate the regions of northern Iraq and Syria. In their new territories, they became a warrior elite, warlords dominating the cities and peoples who were there before. They took over the ruling institutions, and began to rule as the new upper class. By the time Egypt's 18th dynasty began, the Mitanni warlords were firmly ensconced in Syria and Mesopotamia. They ruled a confederation of towns across the area, and they had made themselves into a very powerful force. Interestingly, the Mitanni were not quite a unified single state. They were more of a confederation, semi-autonomous communities bound together by a warrior group who gave tribute to a central ruler, but still kind of did their own thing. The Egyptians, funnily enough, were aware of this strange fact, and they always made a point of referring to this empire as the lands of Mitanni rather than just the land. For the Egyptians, these people were strange, but they were also a dangerous threat. The Egyptians referred to the Mitanni lands as Naharin, meaning of the river. Which river? Well, that would be the river Euphrates, one of the most important rivers in the ancient Near East. Flowing down from Turkey towards the Persian Gulf, the Euphrates linked different landscapes and peoples of Iraq together in one grand network. Since it flowed north to south, whoever controlled the headwaters had a powerful influence on what happened further downstream. At the time of Tutmos III, the Mitanni were the ones who controlled the Euphrates' headwaters. Their territory covered both sides of the river, and they controlled powerful fortified towns on either bank. Anyone in the north wanting to trade with the south 
had to go through Mitanni territory. As you can imagine, this had made them quite rich. And that is about all we can say of the Mitanni. There are political traces from later eras, but hardly any details. Heck, even their kings are mostly just names. There are no surviving king lists or annals to give us a clue of their ideals, their beliefs, or their actions. What we have are fragments from different sources which historians have laboriously pieced together. They've done their best, and from their efforts we have this very basic idea. The king of Mitanni around 1462 BCE was named Bharatana. Maybe. It could also have been Parshatana. No one's certain. I'm going with Bharatana because that's the one I've seen in the most sources. If I'm wrong, hopefully the dead will forgive my ignorance. Bharatana was ruler of a huge swathe of territory, a confederation of cities that gave tribute and loyalty to him, and his elite warriors were a potent force. Like most ancient Bronze Age powers, the Mitanni seem to have been charioteers in their elite, backed up by spear-wielding infantry and archers by the thousands. So that's what we know about the Mitanni. It's not much to go on, is it? What we can say is that Tutmos, now moving north of Tunip and Kadesh into central Syria, was going up against a powerful empire. This was a much stronger threat than any he had faced previously, Compared to the rebels, isolated city-states, and small principalities he'd been conquering, the Mitanni were in another league altogether. The army of King Tutmos was still on the march, deeper into central Syria. His troops were tired, and they were hungry, but they were still ready for war. For the king, everything was going rather well. Time was still on Tutmos' side, and he had not lost the element of surprise. In fact, everything that had happened so far was actually working in his favour. To anyone paying attention, this campaign probably looked like just another raid into Lebanon and Syria. Sure, the army was larger than ever before, but the locals might be forgiven for thinking that Tutmos was really just here to assault the Syrian towns like Tunip or Kadesh, to finish what he had been attempting for years. How wrong they were. Tutmos now played his winning hand. Skipping past Tunip and Kadesh, the army began to move north, away from southern Syria, and towards the valley of the Euphrates River. They were coming directly for the Mitanni. This was the moment where timing became more and more urgent. Everything up to this point had seemed like a regular Egyptian raid against the lands of southern Syria. Now, the gloves were off. Tutmos was clearly doing something unexpected. Everyone watching the army march through their territory was just one more pair of eyes that might report what the king was doing. If Tutmos was not quick enough, the Mitanni might get wind of his attack before he could pull it off. The army now began to hurry. From the region of Tunip up to the Euphrates River was a distance of more than 200 miles. No matter how quickly the Egyptians moved, it still took approximately 23 days. Days which, moment by moment, increased the enemy's chances of recovering and responding. The army had to stop for at least a few days rest at the ancient city of Aleppo. More on that another day. 
Soon after that, they reached a town called Kachemish, where the locals put up a short resistance, easily overthrown. The Egyptians took some captives and hostages and imposed a tax on Kachemish, and then they carried on their way. The army was now on a roll. Anyone standing in the way was swiftly overthrown, and their momentum was building. Of course, eventually the pace of their advance would take a toll. By the time Tutmos finally approached the waters of the great river Euphrates, his army had been on the march for 36 days. Add to that the time spent in Byblos and that sailing the Mediterranean, it had already been more than two months since the Egyptians left their homeland. If they did not reach their goals soon, discipline and morale would begin to crumble. It was now early July in 1462. The Egyptian army had been on the move for two months. It was tired, thirsty, and footsore. As the soldiers marched their way northward through Syria, many of them must have asked, how far were they going to go? How long would the king keep this up? The advance into Syria was pushing far beyond the borders. This campaign may have seemed like an increasingly futile exercise. The Egyptians could not control this much territory so quickly. This was beyond all reason. It, it was madness. But then the soldiers crested a rise, and a beautiful sight awaited them. The wide, flowing waters of the Euphrates. Flowing north to south, the river was a marker. The Egyptians had reached their goal. The army of the king had now come as far north as any Egyptian had ever done, and, what's more, they were completely unexpected by the enemy. They had done it. They had achieved their target. Sitting before the banks of the Euphrates, Tutmos III could congratulate himself. He had achieved something now that had not been done for more than fifty years, since the days of his grandfather, Tutmos I, no Egyptian army had come this far north. They were now in new territories, and they were readying to achieve something extraordinary. But there was a problem. The Euphrates is a wide river. At some places it is up to five kilometres wide, or three miles. It can be rocky, and it can be rough. Crossing it was not going to be easy, and if the Egyptians did not cross, then they would have to satisfy themselves with plundering the West Bank. But that was hardly a glorious campaign, and not much use either. The Mitanni heartland was eastward, across the river. Out here on the peripheries, the Egyptians were not much use to anyone. The Euphrates was a formidable obstacle to anyone. For the Egyptians, it was doubly so. You see, having marched months across the desert, they of course had no ships. Or did they? As the army's baggage train approached the waters of the Euphrates, the labourers began to unload them. Wagons were pulled up, the covers thrown off, and Tutmos III finally unveiled his secret weapon. Boats. Dozens upon dozens of boats. Shallow-bottomed, wide, and able to carry dozens of men at a time, these boats would be the key to Tutmos's advance across the Euphrates, and into the heartland of the Mitanni. With these boats, carried hundreds of miles, he could cross the wide-ranging waters and attack his foes before he even realised he was there. With these boats, his victory was all but assured. So, it was time to cross. The crossing of the Euphrates River took approximately three days. Assuming he left behind the wagon train and a rear guard, Tutmos probably took about 8,000 people across the river. Travelling on their shallow barges, the soldiers made their crossing group by group. As the first group crossed, they carried with them a rope, 
When they reached the other side, they anchored that rope on the far bank, and so the next groups could guide themselves across more easily. With everyone working together, the work was accomplished relatively quickly, all things considered. The soldiers stepped off their barges, unloaded the horses and chariots, and prepared to march. Onwards towards Matani, onwards to victory. Tutmos had achieved the element of surprise, and the Matani were completely unprepared for his sudden appearance. Their elite warriors were still at home, safe and sound. There was no proper resistance ready to face the Egyptians. Tutmos recounted the affair in typically bombastic style. Quote, The numerous army of Mitanni is cast down in one hour. They have disappeared completely like those who never were, like the end of the devourer by act of the arms of the great god, strong in battle, who causes slaughter among everyone. The local ruler, perhaps a Mitanni warlord, could not stand against the full might of the Egyptian army. At best, the Mitanni was accompanied by a paltry militia, hastily assembled, ill-prepared, and on the back foot. If this were a card game, Tutmos pretty much held all the cards. So, what do you expect? This first engagement was short and sharp, over in an hour. Is the story true? Well, probably. Tutmos's description is obviously specific to a particular encounter, but he also continues more generally. Quote, the powerful one cast them down, strong of arm, trampling down his enemies. He is the king who fights alone, no throng is surrounding his heart. He is more courageous than millions in the great army, one does not find his like. He is a warrior, courageous on the battlefield, one cannot resist him. He fights with both of his arms against all foreign countries, at the very forefront of his army. He flashes like a star crossing the sky between two troops of bowmen. As soon as he enters the fray, his attack is like a flame indeed. He extinguishes them completely, and they lie in their blood. It is his effective spirit which casts them down for him. His flame casts down his enemies. End quote. All things considered, Tutmose's description here is probably only 90% exaggeration. In other words, things may have gone relatively like this. The Mitanni simply were not ready to put up an effective resistance. For the Mitanni elite, the charioteers, the heavy soldiers, to muster, they would have needed weeks of warning. But they did not have that, so they were not able to muster the forces needed to seriously challenge Tutmos and his army. So, the first battle was ridiculously one-sided. Anticlimax? Maybe. But Tutmos was not exactly interested in drama. He could make that up later. For now, he just wanted to win. Of course, the war had only just begun. The Egyptian army was still on the far side of the river, and the empire of Mitanni was now awake to their presence. The great inscriptions and biographies which touch on this period of the campaign are a little bit muddled, and there has been a bit of debate on which events occurred when. But, following the work of Donald Redford in his seminal Wars in Syria and Palestine of Tutmose III, the events following the first battle seem to have gone something like this. The king of Mitanni, or at least one of the leading warlords, appeared on the field not too long after the first battle. He was accompanied only by a small bodyguard, and when Tutmose encountered him, he... well, let's just say he fared badly. This anonymous warlord, maybe King Baratana, took one look at the Egyptian army and fled headlong. 
he went east, towards the Matani heartland, back towards the capital. In his haste, he left the towns and cities of the Euphrates open to the Egyptians. With his flight, Mitanni resistance in the west now crumbled, and Tutmose's victory began to pick up pace. The king responded swiftly to this opportunity. Quote, then his majesty, life, prosperity, health, dispatched the army and the chariotry to plundering. These towns were set on fire, and their treasures were all removed. End quote. Royal officials accompanying Tutmos recorded in their autobiographies that the campaign proceeded pretty smoothly from here on out. With the Mitanni resistance either destroyed or fleeing, the Egyptians had their leisure on the east bank of the Euphrates. Towns before them, mostly unfortified agricultural centres, collapsed against their attack, and the plundering began now. As a statement of his power, Tutmos burned a great many of them. Now, for this approximately two-week period, the Egyptian army had basically its free run of the east bank of the Euphrates River. Every town and farming community in the region was basically put to the sword or plundering. This was not exactly a pleasant situation, especially for the locals. Tutmose and his biographers talk about it in grandiose terms, but we have to acknowledge this was a brutal series of events, and for anyone living in this region, the coming of the Egyptians was absolutely devastating. It's unfortunate that this part of the world seems to be so afflicted with these kind of conflicts, but when you're in such a strategic location, there's really not much other choice. Great powers come and go, and every single one of them wants to control the valuable trade routes and agricultural produce of this part of the world. Unfortunately, Tutmos was just one in a long line. He was not the first, and he was not the last. Butchers, conquerors, and slaughterers come through this part of the world on a regular basis. Unfortunately, the Egyptians were no exception. The Egyptian army spent approximately two weeks marching up and down the lands of the western Mitanni. The Egyptians burned towns, slaughtered garrisons, and took captives. Any who resisted would be punished, and more than one biography speaks about taking captives and being rewarded for bravery. I will explore those biographies in a later episode. Suffice to say that there were a few memorable but minor episodes in these events. Finally, the moment came when Tutmos decided to stop advancing. He had burned, plundered, and killed. His statement of power was, it seems, more than accomplished. It was time to begin the homeward journey. But although he now turned his army back towards the Euphrates and the path home, Tutmos was not quite finished with his statements. For one thing, this was merely an expedition. Once those who witnessed it were gone, it would be forgotten. So, the king needed a way to immortalize it, forever. The Egyptian army returned to the spot where they had first crossed the Euphrates River. Here, near the Syrian town of Kachemish, Tutmos ordered that a suitable spot be found for a great monument to his expedition. The Egyptians would erect a huge stela, either freestanding or carved into the side of a cliff. This monument would commemorate the event and stand as testament for all time. A suitable location was soon found, and the Egyptians stayed near the Euphrates for a few more days while it was carved. The stela itself is lost, no one has found it on any cliff face, and if it was just a normal monument standing somewhere, it was probably smashed long ago. Which is a shame, but what can you do? 
The point is, Tutmos had now set up a monument to his extraordinary achievement, a feat to rival his grandfather, and even to surpass it. This campaign was an accomplishment that would not be rivaled until the days of the Ptolemies, more than a thousand years later. Tutmos's eighth campaign, sometimes called the Euphrates Campaign, sometimes called the Mitanni Campaign, was the high point of the Egyptian military legend. Participation in this campaign brought respect and prestige to many officials. And I would bet that soldiers who marched with Tutmos told the story to their children and their grandchildren for years to come. Some of those stories we will hear in a later episode. For now, it's time to make the homeward journey. The Egyptian army began its homeward trip with a return crossing of the Euphrates River. The barges and ships which they had hauled all the way from Byblos were now used to carry them back towards the lands of western Syria. What they did with these barges once they were on the other side is anyone's guess, but I would wager that they carefully disassembled them, put them back into the wagons, and carried them back towards Lebanon. Good wood is good wood, after all. Those barges could be repurposed back in Egyptian territory. Soon, the 10,000 members of Tutmos' royal army found themselves back on more familiar territory. Their expedition into the Mitanni heartland had been a rousing spectacle, a demonstration of Egypt's military capability. That Tutmos could project his military strength more than 600 miles away from Egypt itself, well, that was sure to capture the attention of the wider world. This kind of endeavour was as much about propaganda and statements as it was about any strategic victory. But symbolic victories don't pay the bills, so to speak, and this is one thing that we have to take thought for. Although the Egyptians had achieved a stunning feat of military audacity, their actual material rewards seem to have been a bit thin. You see, it doesn't seem like the spoils of the campaign into the Mitanni lands were all that impressive. The Egyptians had faced only paltry resistance, a few militia maybe, and they hadn't captured any notable nobles or elites. So the plunder and treasure? Yeah, that probably was a bit hard to come by by normal standards. This was a problem. The campaign was a great accomplishment for sure, but if the Egyptians came home empty-handed, well, those at home would not be overly impressed. With this in mind, Tutmos was probably acutely aware of the need to bring back as much stuff as possible. So as the king and his army began their march southward, Tutmos probably kept an eye out for opportunities. If there was plunder to be had in Syria, that might make up for the shortfall a bit. The army now set out southward once more, retracing their steps past Katchemish and Aleppo. Over the course of three weeks, approximately 21 days or so, they headed through central Syria and down towards a region called Nia. Along the way, they looted towns and villages in their way. I suspect that, disappointed with the paltry spoils of Mitanni, Tutmos decided to take what he could from the other lands. The reception of tribute and the plundering did not take too long, and the army now proceeded relatively swiftly. Eventually, the army came into the country of Nia. Nia is one of those areas that historians haven't conclusively identified yet. Simply put, it is somewhere south of Aleppo, north of Kadesh, and east of the Orontes River. It was hilly country, with a good temperate climate and plenty of grasslands. Quite a charming area, all things considered. As the Egyptians marched into this land, their victories now behind them, and home to look forward to. 
this part of the campaign might have seemed like a pleasant little holiday. Evidently the king thought so, because while he was in Nia, Tutmos exercised his royal prerogative and halted the march, just for a couple of days. Why? Well, he wanted to go hunting. The royal hunt was a long-standing tradition of Egyptian kings. Hunting wild animals was a test and demonstration of strength, and a symbol of the king's power over nature. In the New Kingdom, this tradition slowly found its way into the propaganda narratives of the royal family, until, down the road, the crown princes were expected to complete a great hunt as proof of their fitness to rule. Tutmos, among whose royal names was the epithet Mighty Bull, Mighty of Strength, was ready and eager to flex his muscles. Armed with his bow, perhaps that trusty weapon that he picked up in Katna, Tutmos set out into the countryside of Nia in order to hunt. His prey? None other than the mighty Asian elephant. A great feat of prowess which Ray commanded of me by the sea of Nia. He made me drive together a herd of elephants. My majesty fought them, they being a herd of one hundred and twenty. Never had the like been done by a king since the god who had seized the white crown of Upper Egypt. I said this without boasting about it, and without a lie therein. I did it according to what my father Amun-Re, lord of the thrones of the two lands, commanded of me, he who guided my majesty on the good path by his effective plans. He united for me the black land and the red land, and that which the sun encircles is in my grasp. End quote. I like that Tutmos has to double-check that we believe him. I said this without boasting. I swear to you I'm telling the truth. I totally killed 120 elephants. But, you know, it was like all the way over in Syria, so you couldn't see it. Oh, and also, my girlfriend, she lives up there. So you haven't met her, but she's totes real, I swear. <clears throat> anyway, Tutmos went on a hunting rampage, apparently. Either alone or with his buddies, he killed 120 West Asian elephants. That is no small feat. The West Asian or Syrian elephant could reach as high as 3.5 meters tall, or 11 and a half feet, and it was a powerful beast indeed. They were eventually hunted to extinction by around 100 BCE, but in the days of Tutmos III, the Syrian elephants were still populous and wild. Regarding the hunt itself, we do have a couple of small glimpses. One of the officials accompanying the army, a man named Amun M. Hab, took special note of the hunt when he wrote down his autobiography. According to Amun M. Hab, it was a dramatic spectacle. The official claims to have cut off an elephant's trunk while it was still living, and that he fought against these beasts while standing knee-high in a nearby watering hole. Based on this, we have to guess that the Egyptians surprised the elephants at a pond or lake, and corralled them into rocky and difficult terrain. There, like their ancestors hunting mammoths, they went to work, beating the elephants to death and spearing them. Not a pleasant story, but these are the facts of the ancient world. Amun Emhab also reported that the king hunted these elephants, quote, for the sake of their tusks. It seems that for Tutmos, the prize of this hunt was the ivory, ivory that could be taken back to Egypt and turned into prestige goods. Vases, decorations, divine statues, ivory was a high-quality artistic medium. Acquiring piles of ivory with this hunt, Tutmos not only pulled off a splendid demonstration of his physical strength, but also ensured that when he came home, 
he had something meaningful to donate to the temples of the Nile Valley. Which is probably one reason that the king references the command of Amun-Re in his boasting. He said, I hunted according to what my father, Amun-Re, lord of the thrones of the two lands, commanded of me. So Tutmose's hunting wasn't just about fun or spectacle or prowess, it was also a valuable economic investment. This was a good way of picking up the shortfall in booty. If the Mitanni did not provide adequate plunder and wealth, the wildlife of Syria would do it instead. Those poor elephants. Before he left, Tatmose made one more quick hunt. Quote, when he spent a moment of recreation hunting in any foreign land, the quantity that he captured was greater than what the entire army achieved. He slew seven lions by shooting them in a single instant. Dang. It sounds like Tutmos killed seven lions with just one shot each from his bow. Well, I find that hard to believe. It's possible, but highly unlikely. It reminds me of the story of how the North Korean leader Kim Jong-il supposedly gained 11 holes in one the very first time he played golf. Well, Tutmos claims to have killed seven lions with single shots of his bow. It's a tad incredible, but you can sort of see the parallel, can't you? Anyway. With his ivory and his lion pelts in hand, Tatmos now decided that enough was enough. The time had come to return home, back to Byblos and back to Egypt. There is not much to report of the Egyptians' homeward journey after the hunting foray. They stopped briefly to collect tribute from nearby towns, but not long after they were back in the town of Byblos. Again, they paused for a couple of days to catch their breath, take care of any local affairs, and get ready for that last stretch. Then, four months after they had departed Egypt, the troops left Byblos and began the homeward journey. Curiously, Tutmos decided not to sail home, but to march. Why? We do not know. Maybe it was the weight of the plunder that he had brought back from Syria and the hunting trip. All those goods had to be transported somehow. Maybe it was more safe to march with them rather than risk losing any of it in a storm or shipwreck in the Mediterranean Sea. Or maybe the king wished to remind the people of Canaan of his power. The sight of 10,000 Egyptians marching through their lands, with their chariots, animals, and captives in treasure, that must have been impressive. Perhaps having accomplished his great outward leap, Tutmos thought it prudent to remind everyone in the vicinity just who he was and what he was capable of doing. The march home from Byblos to Egypt took 37 days. The Egyptians went down through western Canaan, passing by landmarks like Megiddo, Joppa, and Gaza. And then they left Canaan and entered the Sinai Peninsula. There, they set foot onto the well-trodden paths that Egyptian armies had been using since the Old Kingdom and pre-dynastic period. These routes were called the Ways of Horus, i.e. the Pathways of the King of Egypt. As they set foot onto these routes, the Egyptian soldiers must have felt a growing sense of homecoming. Finally, they began to catch a glimpse of green on the horizon, a smudge of dark foliage growing ever closer. They were coming to the delta. They were coming back home. Tutmos and his soldiers made their way into Egypt, probably at a town called Charu near the Mediterranean coast. It was sometime in mid-November of 1462 BCE. Regnal year 33 of the king was now drawing to its close. The army had been out of Egypt for more than five months. 
The return was a victorious homecoming indeed. Soon after his arrival, Tutmos was making plans for a great celebration. Not just any old celebration, but a commemoration of his own ascent to power. You see, before the regnal year was out, Tutmos would be celebrating a said festival, a jubilee of his coronation and a renewal of his divine powers. Coming in the wake of his glorious victory, this was going to be a celebration to remember. All that being said, I wonder if Tutmos considered the whole affair a little bit bittersweet. See, his victory over the Mitanni had been marvellous and remarkable, hugely symbolic of his strength and cunning as a ruler. But what had it achieved in practical terms? Realistically, Tutmos might have known that what he had achieved was not necessarily a decisive or devastating victory. He had defeated a small Mitanni army, but that had really been just a militia, hastily assembled and ill-prepared to face the Egyptians. The real prize, the Mitanni warlords and their king, they had been absent from almost the whole affair. In a way, Tutmos's own strategy had actually worked against him. By launching a surprise attack, the Egyptians had pulled off an easy victory for sure, but a decisive victory would have required a decisive battle, and a decisive battle would have required the full might of the Mitanni army to actually be present. But since he had come unexpectedly, Tutmos was left facing the dregs of his enemy's military power. To face off the Mitanni properly, they would have had to know that he was coming. What Tutmos had achieved with the Euphrates campaign was not a decisive victory, crushing his enemies utterly or destroying the threat forever. No, what he had achieved was a symbolic victory, a grand spectacle of Egyptian prowess and military ability. It was basically a propaganda victory, but not a physical one. Please don't think that I'm denigrating this achievement. Symbols are powerful things, especially in politics. When the goal is to sway hearts and minds, to make people fear you, respect you, or even admire you, a symbolic victory like this campaign is still worth its weight in gold. Certainly, Tatmos had greatly increased his influence and authority in Syria. He had bypassed and surrounded the cities of Tunip and Kadesh, cities which had been troubling him for years. He had defeated the peoples of Katna, of Aleppo, and of Karchemish. Finally, he had thrown a powerful roll of the dice by attacking the Mitanni directly. Anyone watching these events unfold was sure to come away with one conclusion above all. The Egyptians were now entering onto the world stage, and they were ready to play the great games of international diplomacy and competition. Tutmos's victory, as we will see, was about to open up a whole new world of Egyptian politics. In November of 1462 BCE, Tutmos III was on top of the world. His victory had been spectacular, his enemies revealed as ill-prepared weaklings. None could stand against the might of the king of Egypt, it seemed. The Egyptian empire was rapidly approaching its high point, the utmost peak of its power and glory. The only question was, what next? The History of Egypt podcast will return in the first week of February 2017. For now, I'm off to enjoy the New Zealand summer. 
but I do have some cool little projects in the pipeline, which I'll reveal in due time. For now, please enjoy your New Year's break. I will see you soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.